Well, good morning. Uh, can't see you, but you can see me. So glad you guys are able to join us here this morning. Uh, this morning we are in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is where we're at this morning. We're continuing our series, Captivated by Jesus. Uh, we're continuing that series this morning. And we're answering the question, are you able to see? Are you able to see from John chapter 9 this morning? Um, I'm not really, we got to go through the whole text in order to get the context for what's here. So I know in the past I've been reading some selections. This week we're just going to dive right in and we're going to read through the text as we go. So if you'll join me uh, in prayer, then we'll, we'll dive into the message. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather, um, though digitally, but we thank you for the opportunity to gather as the church to, to open your word, God. Uh, to learn from it. Um, and as we do this morning, help us as we walk through this to indeed learn uh, from your word, to apply it to our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we were kids, we used to play baseball at the park uh, every single summer. And we didn't have a baseball diamond, and so we ended up making our own. We took these huge rocks and we, we, we put them out there to make you know, the bases that we were going to run to. And we measured them out and everything like that. And this was just sandlot ball, so we didn't have a lot of people uh, who would come and play. It was just a limited number of people. There were a limited number of good people uh, as well who would come and play. And so we just, we just had these, this limited number of people who would come and who would play. And so we would take and we'd split up the teams. We would put some of the people uh, who were good on one team and some of the people who were good on the other team. And then we would take those people who were good fielders and we would put them out there in the field so that the ball would actually get, get fielded well, which meant that the, the person who was going to pitch wasn't necessarily someone who was going to be striking people out every single time. Uh, my sister was someone who actually ended up pitching. She was able to, to get the ball over the plate somewhat accurately so people could hit it, but that meant she also had to get a little bit closer to the plate than you normally would, would want to be. And one day in particular, she is out there, she's pitching, and this guy comes up, and, and he's a strong, strong hitter. Uh, one of the better ball players in the neighborhood. And so he comes up and, and he connects with that ball and it comes right back at my sister. She doesn't have a glove on because uh, she's not necessarily out there to be fielding. I don't know why she didn't have a glove, but she didn't. But, but the ball comes and it hits her right in the eye. And she immediately drops to the ground. And this guy who is close by her, he runs, he grabs her, he scoops her up and he, and he beats me to my house even though he's carrying my sister. And then, then my parents put her in the car, took her off to the emergency room at the hospital. And, and her eyes are, you know, they're, they're already swelling up and, they're, you know, things are not going, going well. But they get there and one of the first questions that the doctor asks her is, are you able to see? Are you able to see? And that's an important question to ask someone who has just gotten hit in the face with a baseball. Are you able to see? And you know, that's the same question that this text is asking us this morning. That's the same question that I am asking you this morning. Are you able to see? Now, I know that that's a bit enigmatic at this moment, um, but you're going to see what I mean as we get in here. By the time we are finished today, that will be clear. Are you able to see? Well, John 9 begins with Jesus' encounter with a blind man. Jesus' encounter 
with the blind man. And Jesus encounters the blind man as he's coming out of the temple. If you remember Jesus, he got into the discussion with the Jews um, in chapter 8 about what it looks like to be a true disciple. And prior to that, Jesus is in the temple in, in verse in chapter 7, and he is saying that he is the living water. If anyone thirsts, they would, they would come to me. Chapter 8, he's talking about the fact that he is the light of the world. He is going to lead people out of the wilderness into the promised future kingdom. And, and apart from that discussion, apart from that teaching, he also gets into this conversation with some of the Pharisees about what does it look like, or the Jewish leaders, what does it look like to be a true disciple? And if you remember last week, we talked about, you know, true disciples are those who abide in Jesus. They are those who continue to believe in Jesus. You know, belief is not, you know, a past activity. Rather, belief is a present reality. And you see as you walk through chapter 8 that, that some of those folks who claimed to be his disciples were really not his disciples. And, and by the end of the chapter, they are picking up stones in order to stone Jesus. But, but as we've seen time and time again through the gospel here, it is not Jesus' time yet. And so Jesus hides himself, and at the end there, he, he slips out of the temple with his disciples. And this is where we pick up in today's text. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And most likely this man is sitting outside of the temple. He's, he's begging. That's, that's what the blind had to do in Jesus' day. There were no governmental programs. There was no special technology that allowed them to work or anything like that. They had to rely on their family. They had to, to beg for money. And this is what this man is doing. And when Jesus passed by, he, he sees this blind man. And somehow, we're not told how, but somehow he and his disciples become focused on this man. Maybe Jesus points this man out to them. Or maybe, you know, this man is just begging and so he's being loud and they hear him and they turn and they, and they look to him. But either way, they become focused on this man. And as they, as they do, this begins a discussion between Jesus and his disciples. So look at verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born Blind. You see, in Jesus' day, many people believed that, that it was sin that caused these physical ailments. And, and Jesus' disciples were wondering, well, why was this man born blind? Who caused this man's blindness? Was it his parents? I mean, did they, did they sin in such a way that, that God is now punishing them by having to take care of a son who is blind, going to be blind all of his life? Or was it this man? You know, there was this thought that, that babies could actually sin in the womb and maybe this would result in their death or, or maybe it would result in some sort of physical ailment that would take place. So who sinned, Jesus' disciples are asking. Was it this man or was it his parents? And when Jesus' disciples asked that, they were operating underneath the same idea that Job's friends operated under. If you remember Job, he, he lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his health, he lost his wealth, he lost all of his property, uh, everything but his nagging wife, right? But Job's friends, they, they come to visit him, and when Job's friends come to visit him, to talk to him about all of what has just happened in his life, Job is, is, is covered in boils, he's, he's sitting there in ashes, and his friends are like, Job, you have got to repent, I mean, if God hasn't gotten through to you by now, I mean, let, 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 let us get through to you. Look at all the things that has happened to you. Job, you have got to repent so that God will relent his punishment on your life. And Job, of course, he, he swears up and down throughout the book that, that there is nothing that he has done 
that he needs to repent of, that he is indeed a righteous man. And if you, if you go and you read just the first couple chapters of the book of Job, you would see that that is true. That all of this happened to Job because Satan came to God and he said, look, Job praises you, Job follows you because of the blessing that you have given him. If you let me take that blessing away from him, he will, he will deny you. And of course, we see that that happens, but, but Job does not deny the Lord. He remains faithful. But either way, Job is this upright man, and it is his, his friends who, who, are, who are making this one-to-one correlation, just like Jesus' disciples are doing here, between what we do and what we receive. And some of you might believe like this as well. You know, have you ever thought, you know, I, I better make sure that I do my quiet time this morning, that I read God's Word, that I pray, um, that, that I tithe, that, that, I, that, that, I, that I go to church this week. Because if I don't, then maybe I'll get in a wreck to work on, on my way to work. Or maybe I will get fired from my job. Or maybe something will happen to one of my family members. Have you ever thought like that? Or, or maybe on the flip side of that, you said, you know, my life is going well. And, and the reason my life is going well is because I'm doing all the things that God has asked me to do. I'm reading my Bible, you know, I'm, I'm praying, I'm, I'm giving a tithe to the church. I'm there every single week. I'm serving even when they don't ask me to serve. I'm volunteering to serve. Life is going well because I am doing things for the Lord and He's blessing me in this case. Now, if you've ever operated out of that mindset then you are doing exactly what Job's friends are doing. You're doing exactly what Jesus' friends are doing. Not only is that not correct, but, but it sets, up, sets us up either to be a prideful person or to be a disgruntled person. On the one hand, it sets us up to be a prideful person. You know, so, so we think things are going well because of all of the things that I have done. And then when we encounter someone whose life is not really going all that well, well, well we're not going to be compassionate. We're not going to be merciful to that person. Instead, we're going to be like, man, they need to get their life together like me. I, I've got everything together. I'm doing everything right. Look at how successful and, and how great things are going in my life. Or on the flip side of that, you might become a disgruntled person. You, you, you look and you say, I'm doing all of the things that, that I'm supposed to be doing. I'm doing all the things that God is asking me to do, but, but my life is not going well. I'm sick. I've, I've lost some money in the stock market. You know, I've lost my job. Something has happened to my, my family member. Life is not going well, and we end up being this disgruntled person. So thinking that there's this one-to-one correlation between our works and the things that happen is not the type of thinking that drives worship. It's not the type of thinking that drives compassion. Instead, what it does is it drives pride and it can drive anger at God. Because we're like, God, I'm holding up my end of the bargain. Where are you at, God? Why are you not providing me all of those things that I want in my life? It ends up with us at Treating God like he is this cosmic genie in the sky. That, that we can just, you know, put stuff in through our works and God just gives it back to us. In a sense, that, that selfish way of worshiping the Lord. But is that how the world operates? Is suffering always the result of our sin? Should we treat God like this cosmic genie in the sky, like he's just this, you know, 
vending machine that, that we put something in and we get something out? Is suffering always the result? Is it, is it always this one-to-one correlation that takes place between what we do and what we receive immediately? Well, Jesus answered in verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus tells his disciples that suffering is not always a one-to-one correlation. Certainly, sin can lead to punishment. Sin can lead to God's discipline in our lives. Certainly, that happens. Certainly, that happens, but it is not always the case. If you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you see that that the preacher there makes the point that, that sometimes those who are the most wicked are the most prosperous, and sometimes those who are the most righteous are the least prosperous. See, there's not always a one-to-one correlation between our sin and our suffering. Sometimes it's just that we live in a sinful world, and we're seeing that play out right now. The reason that we're that I'm preaching to you through a camera here in our auditorium or sanctuary is because of a sinful world because we live in a world that is broken we live in a world that is not operating in the way in which God has designed for it to operate and so we we end up in this pandemic that is affecting not just us but affecting the entire world we live in a broken world and so sometimes we experience things because of that Other times, we experience difficulty and hardship in life so that God might receive the glory. And that's what's taking place in this man's case. Jesus says there at the end of verse 3 that the works of God might be displayed in him. That God might be glorified through this. And that might be the case in your life. You might be suffering from something, not, not, not because you sinned last week or not because you sinned today. You might be suffering from something because God is going to use your, your suffering for His glory. I believe my mom is a good example of this. At the age of 18, she was diagnosed with scleroderma, and it's an autoimmune disease that affects everybody differently. And, and hers was, was, was a pretty bad case. And, and, and just progressively, over 20 years, it got worse and worse and worse until it eventually took her life. And And as far as I know, my mom was a righteous person. She took us to church every single week. She read her Bible. She prayed. Even when when the pain got worse and worse and worse, she she didn't deny God and said she leaned on God as her rock. She took us to church. She made sure that we were discipled. She preached the gospel to us. But she still suffered, and she suffered terribly. And I don't know all the ways in which my mom, mom's suffering brought the Lord glory, but, but I do know that it had a big impact on my life. It was one of the reasons that the Lord used to, to it was one of the ways the Lord used to, to bring me to himself. Now, sure, I was, I was certainly mad at God after my mom passed. I was mad at God. Why wouldn't he heal her? We see all these other people being healed Why wouldn't he heal her? Why would he allow this to take place? Why would he allow her to suffer in this way? Certainly I was was mad at God, but but her faithfulness to God through the suffering was one of the reasons that I came to know the Lord. I I thought if anyone had the right to be mad at God, it was my mom. But instead of being mad at God, she found her comfort in Jesus, and that had a big impact on me. It was one of the ways in which I was convinced that that Christianity was true, that, that God was real, that, that, that God's word, what, what he gives to us here was, was his words to us. That Jesus truly had come and, and died for our sins. 
You see, God was, was glorified in my mom's suffering as she continued to praise him through that suffering. And God was glorified in my mom's suffering as that was a means by which God used to bring me to himself, to save me. And just as the Lord used my mom's suffering for his glory, the Lord used the blind man's suffering for his glory as well. We'll pick back up in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me, Jesus said, while it's still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and he washed and he came back seen. And so here we see that, that this man is healed. He's healed kind of in a, in a strange way. Jesus uses some mud from the ground, which I think links us back to Genesis chapter 2, where, where God takes this, this mud and he forms man. But then he also tells him he needs to go and wash. And he sends him to this pool of Siloam, which means sent. And I think what, what we're seeing here is that this connection between Jesus being the living water, Jesus being the sent one who has come on the Father's mission to rescue his people from sin. We see these things beginning to play out here in this miracle. And we also see that, that this man was placed here. At this point, this man was born blind not because his parents sinned, not because he sinned. This man was born blind in order that Jesus might walk by him at this moment in history, see him, heal him, and God might receive the glory. And indeed, the Father was glorified. A man who was once blind can now see. And as you read through the text, as we begin to work through this, we're going to see that this is the first time in the history of the world that a blind person was healed. God indeed received the glory. What we see then is that, that our life is meant to glorify God, which means that, that, that we're not at the center of things. God is the one who is at the center of this universe. God is our creator. God is the all-sovereign God of this world. Our life is meant to glorify God. And we experience good things, though, from that. Certainly, we experience benefit from this. I mean, we are connected to that in, that in that we experience joy. We experience salvation. We experience peace and comfort as God gives these good gifts to his children, as God works in our life, as God displays his power and his majesty. We certainly receive benefit in that. We are connected to that, but it's not all about us. We see here that it's all about God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about making His name famous. It's all about bringing Him glory. That is what our life is to be lived for. And so if you're facing something right now, know that, that, that you can continue to trust in God because God is there. God will provide for you. Know that, that if you're facing some difficulty right now in your life, that is not all for naught. God will use that and he will use that for his glory. We may not know the ways in which God is glorified, but we know that God will use that for his glory. And we know that God will work all things together for the good of those who are his. That he will use that ultimately to bring us to our ultimate glorification. 
in the eternal kingdom to come. Our suffering, the difficulties that we face, drives us to trust in God and that glorifies God. But past that, it can also be used to glorify God in many different ways, ways that we may not ever see or ever even know. But we know that we are here and we have been placed here to bring God glory. But in order for us to see suffering in this way as something that that glorifies God, we have to have been given the ability to see. In order for us to to see suffering this way as something that, that glorifies God, we've got to be given the eyes to see that. And we have to ask ourselves, well, well, who gives us that ability? Who gives us the ability to see? And we're gonna we're gonna see that as we continue through in the text. So look at verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. And others said, No. But he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So imagine this scene. I mean, this man who has been blind, he's now able to see, he's walking around, and there are people who see him and they're like, you know what? That's the guy. That's the guy who's been sitting there begging all his life. He can see he's walking around freely. And other people are like, no way, that's not him. That's definitely not him. It's just, it's somebody who looks like him. It's his twin that we never knew that he had. And this guy all the while is like, guys, guys, it's me. I am the guy. I'm the guy who was blind. But guess what? Now I can see. It's me. It's me. And so they finally realize, okay, this, this is the guy. This is the guy. And they said to him in verse 10, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I do not know. And so we see here that that Jesus is the one who gave this man the ability to see. Jesus is the one who gives us the ability to see. And having heard that Jesus is the one who gave this man his sight, the people go to the religious leaders of the day to see what they think. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, it's just like when you have a question, you might go to your pastor. Same thing. They're going there. They're going to ask the religious leaders, what do you think about what has taken place? And that's a good thing. But we know that the religious leaders have it out for Jesus. We already know what they think about Jesus. We know that they're, they're seeking his life. We know that they want to get rid of Jesus. Now they're being confronted here with, with yet another miracle that Jesus has done. They, we, they see that the people are amazed at the miracle that Jesus has done. That they, They're so amazed they're coming to them to say, what do you guys think? I mean, this guy just healed a blind person. What do you think about Jesus? Something that's never been done before. And so how do the Pharisees respond? We'll look at verse 13. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they again, they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. And so we see some of the Pharisees, they they begin to warm up to Jesus. They begin to think, oh, maybe maybe he's a good guy. 
Other people are like, no way. I mean, he, he's healing on the Sabbath. He's, he's breaking some laws here. We, we, cannot, we cannot accept Jesus. So they're still hung up on the idea of the Sabbath. Now, if you've been tracking all along through the Gospel of John, or even if you haven't, uh, you, you should know that, that Jesus has performed many of his miracles on the Sabbath. And we have to ask, well, why does Jesus keep doing that? Why does Jesus keep performing these miracles on the Sabbath? Is he just trying to get underneath the skin of these people because he knows that it really aggravates him? Or is he trying to do something else? Well, I believe that Jesus has done these miracles on the Sabbath because he wants to confront the religious leader's system of the day. You see, the Pharisees, they believed in a strong God. In order for people to receive his blessings... They needed to be strong and, and obedient people, which meant that they had to keep the law to a T. Because they were so focused on, on just keeping the law so that they might be able to earn God's blessings, they might be able to earn God's favor here, they missed the intent of the law. You see, they had built their religious system around legalistic work. And Jesus is, he's confronting this system with these miracles. He wants the people to see that the Sabbath was, was not meant to be a burden. The Sabbath was given to the people as a way to rest and, and to relax from their toil. It was given to the people so that they might reflect on God, so that they might recognize that God is the one who provides for them, so that they might, they might trust in him. And indeed, the intent of the law was, was mercy and, and compassion. And we see here that these religious leaders are completely blind to that. They are so focused on the law that they are completely blind to the idea of being merciful and compassionate. And so Jesus heals on the Sabbath to attack their idea, to attack their system, to show that the Sabbath indeed was not meant to be a burden. The Sabbath was meant for mercy. The Sabbath was meant for compassion. But in doing so, Jesus is colliding head on with the leaders of this day. They don't like it. You see, if Jesus is right, they're wrong. The way that they've been trying to gain salvation all of these years through, through works is wrong. They've missed the whole point. And, and you know, one of two things happens when you begin to mess with people's preferences, when you begin to mess with what, how people think things should go, when you begin to mess with people's belief systems. One of two things happens. People will either realize, you know what, I'm wrong. Uh, it's not really that, and, and this guy over here is right. And, and I, should, I should believe what he's saying that I, I should believe. Or they double down and they try to get rid of the person who's messing with their system. And guess which option the Pharisees choose, the religious leaders choose. They choose the second option, right? They're not going to admit that, that Jesus is right. No, they don't want their system messed up. They've based their life on this. They're in, they, they base their, their life on this. And so they say, we got to get rid of Jesus. And, and they've already been trying to get rid of him by, by seeking his life. And now, now they begin to try to get rid of Jesus intellectually. They've blinded themselves to the truth and they want others to be blinded to the truth as well. Now, how do they blind themselves to the truth? Well, well they... They try to turn witnesses of Jesus into liars. Look at verse 18. We, we learn that they call this man's parents in and they, they ask him you know, if he had been, been born blind in hopes of, of catching this man in a lie. But that didn't work. His parents said, yes, indeed, he, he, has, he was born blind. 
and now he can see. We don't know how this happened, but this is what, what has happened. And in the conversation with the parents, we see another tactic that they use. So look at the text beginning in verse 20. His parents said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so we see that they instill fear in the people so that they won't talk about Jesus. In this instance, this fear of being ostracized from the community of uh, the, the synagogue of being socially hindered and, and politically hindered and monetarily hindered if they're put out of the synagogue. This is, this is Jewish life. They need connections in the synagogue in order for things to, to take place, in order for things to happen. And his parents said, you know, we're not going to speak about Jesus. We don't want to be put out of the synagogue. You go and you ask our son. Our son's of age. He can answer for himself. We don't need to tell you anymore. It's not about us. It's between you and my son. Go to him. And then we see another tactic in verse 24. They do. They go to the son. And so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And so they try to silence others with their expert opinions. They say, look, we're the, we're, we're the religious leaders of the day. We're the religious authorities. We're the experts of the day. And, and we don't believe in Jesus. We know we know that Jesus is a sinner. And we want you to say the same thing. We want you to agree with us because we are the religious experts. Say that Jesus is a sinner and everything will be okay. And so they call this man to agree with him. And they think, you know, if he will, our system's intact. Our system's okay. We can just write Jesus off. We can write all the miracles that he's done off, even though they're amazing. We can write all of the things that he said off because he's just a sinner. And you know, in some sense, that's what the world does today. The world doesn't want to be confronted with the message of Christianity. They don't, they don't want to even think about it. They don't want to wrestle with it. And so what do they do? They say, you know what? All Christians, all Christians are bigots. And then they feel justified in writing Christianity off wholesale. It's like they don't even want to listen to any arguments or read the Word or, or anything. And I believe if, if those in the world, though, I believe if they would engage with the arguments of Christianity, if they would read the Bible instead of rejecting Jesus, they would end up being captivated by Jesus. They would see Jesus for who He really is. They would see that, that He is this amazing Savior who provides for us, who heals us, who provides peace and joy in difficult times, who gives us hope. But oftentimes people are like the Pharisees. They're not willing to engage. Not even willing to have an honest conversation. They, they, they just write the whole system off because they don't want their system to be wrong. But what does this man do? He doesn't succumb to the pressure. Verse 25, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so this man, he doesn't succumb to the pressure. He doesn't back down. Even though the religious leaders 
are coming there and they're questioning him. They are pressuring him. Even though he is eventually cast out of the synagogue, this man does not back down. He continues to believe that Jesus is the reason that he is able to see and he continues to tell others about that despite the consequences. And he continues to witness as we go through the text here even more boldly. Verse 30, the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. This man is not only not willing to back down, but he's chastising them. They're supposed to be the experts after all. We know that that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Now he's teaching them. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's witnessing to the fact that Jesus truly is from God. And that really gets these folks, right? It really gets them mad. Verse 34, they answered him, You were born in other sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. You see, those who are blind want nothing to do with Jesus or anyone who would witness about Jesus at all. Now, in some sense, this man is probably a bit dumbfounded, right? I mean, instead of the religious leaders celebrating what has been happening, I mean, he's been blind his entire life. He's been sitting outside of the temple. He's been begging his entire life. They've walked past him, certainly. They've probably given him money. They've probably done some things to take care of him. They've seen him every day, blind, and the struggles that the blind face. Instead of celebrating with him, now they're, they're condemning this man. They are, they are pressing him to pronounce this judgment on Jesus. And in some sense, this man is probably a bit dumbfounded. dumbfounded. I mean, he says in verse 25, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And I'm sure this man is walking around like, What just happened? These people want me to bear false testimony about this guy. I haven't done anything. All I was was healed. And now I've been cast out of the synagogue. I mean, what is going on? On one hand, this is, you know, the happiest day of this man's life. He was born blind. He's never been able to see the world. Now he's able to look and see the world. But on the other hand, this is the worst day of this man's life. Because he has experienced healing, he's now been cast out of the synagogue. He's been socially ostracized. While Jesus healed him, he doesn't even know anything about him. He doesn't even know where Jesus is even at. And Jesus, anticipating this man's questions, hearing about what has happened, the persecution, he, he finds him. And Jesus reveals himself to him. And then he reveals to what this healing points So look at verse 35. And Jesus heard they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And then he worshipped him. 
And so Jesus finds him and he reveals himself to him. And Jesus reveals himself as the son of God. He's not just a prophet like this man thought earlier in the text. No, no, he is the God sent savior. And because Jesus has given this man eyes to see, because Jesus has given this man sight, he believes in Jesus and then he worships Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus is God, that he is the God-sent Savior. He recognizes that Jesus is the one who heals him. And recognizing this, he doesn't turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, how dare you allow me to be born blind? How dare you heal me? Do you know what has happened? I've been cast out of the synagogue. No, he turns to Jesus and he believes in Jesus. He, He worships Jesus and he worships and glorifies God because Jesus has given him sight. He has given him eyes to see him for who he really is, that he is the God sent Savior. You see, in order to glorify God in our suffering, we have to have eyes to see. That's why my mom, when she was suffering, could turn to God instead of away from him. She had eyes to see Jesus for who he really was. But these eyes to see go beyond the physical. As we continue through the text, we see that Jesus explains to him why he had to come in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, he has come to give sight to the blind and to make blind those who have sight. And what does this mean? Well, it means in order to receive Jesus' grace, we must recognize that we are blind. We must recognize that we need healing. Those who recognize that are given spiritual eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, that he is the God-sent Savior. You see, this story is about more than physical healing. This story is about spiritual healing. This story is another enacted parable. Remember when we looked back at the beginning of John, we saw that Jesus turned water into wine, and we saw that that was an enacted parable. Here we see the same thing, that this is an enacted parable. It shows us that, that Jesus heals us both physically And Jesus heals us spiritually. And that's why Jesus ultimately came. He came to give us spiritual sight so that we might see him for who he really is. But he only gives spiritual sight to those who recognize that they are blind. Those who think that they have it all figured out. Those who think that their religious system is going to save them like the Pharisees. Those who don't recognize their need for God's grace, for, God's, for, God, for the God-sent Savior. They remain blind and they will eventually face judgment. Look at verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, those who don't recognize they're blind don't turn to the Savior, but those who do will. Jesus did not come to save those who have sight, he says. Jesus came to save those who would admit that they're blind, who would admit that they're broken, who would admit that they need a Savior. And the only way that we're going to realize our blindness is if the Spirit works in our life. We are all like the Pharisees. We all think that we've got it figured out. We all think that we are able to see. 
that our system is going to save us, that our works are going to save us, that we are good enough to earn our place in heaven. We are like the Pharisees. But then God comes and he works in our life and he shows us you actually don't have sight. Actually, you are blind. And unless we recognize that we are blind, we will be like the Pharisees who think that we have sight and we will face judgment one day. You see, we must admit our blindness. We must admit that we don't have it all figured out, that we can't do it on our own, that we cannot accomplish our own salvation, that it is Jesus alone who can save us, that he alone is our savior. We must be willing to admit that we are blind. Jesus says here, he only heals those who know that they're blind. And we know that we are blind through the Spirit's work in our life. And when Jesus heals us, He gives us these eyes to see. And we are given spiritual eyes through which to look at the world. And we can begin to see that that Jesus is our Savior. We can begin to see that that suffering, even though it is, is difficult, even though it is painful, we can begin to see that, that it's for God's glory. We can begin to see that that life is not all about us. The world does not revolve around us. The world instead revolves around God. That God is the one who deserves to be glorified. God is the one who deserves our praise, who deserves our worship. Jesus is the one who should captivate us. When we recognize our blindness, we begin to see we should be captivated by Jesus. We should do all that we can in our life to make Jesus' name famous, to glorify God for who He is. I mean, He is the creator of this entire world. He is the creator of this entire universe. He has sent His Son to die for us so that we might have salvation. Our God is a generous God. Our God is a healing God. And for those who have eyes to see that, they will praise and worship God, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of difficulty. And so let me ask you, do you have eyes to see this morning? Have you been given spiritual eyes? Would you stand from this, with this man from this text and readily admit, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Are you willing to admit your blindness? Are you able to see today? If God has given you spiritual eyes to see, man, take today, take the rest of your life to praise and to worship God. That's how you can respond today if you are a believer in Jesus, by praising and worshiping God, by allowing Jesus and what He has done for us to captivate you, to draw you in so that you will delight in Him and no one else. And this morning, if for the first time you're beginning to see that, that your system, your, your system is not working. It's failing. That, that it is through Jesus alone that I can have salvation. If this morning you are beginning to see that for the first time, now is an opportunity for you, even at home, to commit your life to Jesus. To repent, to, to turn from living how you think you should live, believing how you think you should believe, 
to turn to trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, to believe what He says is true, to believe that He is the God-sent Savior who has died on the cross for our sins, that it is through His payment that we are able to be reconciled to the Father and not through our payment, but through Jesus' payment alone. If you're given eyes to see this morning, now is an opportunity for you to repent, to commit your life to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, and to begin to walk with Him, to begin to walk with Him each and every single day, to abide in Jesus and to truly be His disciples. And so that's how you can respond today, by believing in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, by worshiping the Savior of this universe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for this message. We thank you from this, for this word. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see, that you have sent Jesus on a rescue mission to save us. God, may we praise and glorify you. May we recognize who you are, God. And may that captivate us. May we give you glory and you alone. God, draw us to yourself today. Draw us to yourself and worship this morning. And may you give us eyes to see you for who you really are in an even greater way today so that we might reach out to others and tell them about Jesus. Tell them about who he is and what he has done for us so that they might experience the same hope, the same peace, the same comfort, the same joy that we have as those who are believers in Jesus. God, work through this difficult time that we are facing in this world even now to bring glory to yourself by saving sinners. God, give us all eyes to see so that we might glorify you by trusting in Jesus and worshiping him here this morning. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.